welcome to Four Color Nerds Comic Book Reviews. This is episode 96. I am Carissa, and I am joined by other nerds, Ryan. Hello. And Matt. I am here. Christina has been called to help with the Kents on their farm down in Smallville. That's unlikely. She's going to hate that DC <laughs> reference. That's just mean. Like, seriously, that's the least likely thing Christina would be doing. I think she's, like, messing fools up with some karate kicks or something. She literally is working on a farm today. The weekly barrage of comics and comic-related news can be scary. So we're here to let you know what to check out and what to avoid. We read a variety of comics and gather here to discuss them, as well as anything else that pops into the world of comics and, well, frankly, our heads. There's a chance of spoilers, so if you don't want to worry about them, take a break now and go read your pull list and then come on back we'll be reviewing daredevil number 595 moon knight 188 she hulk 159 batman lost number one star wars number 38 runaways number three on pull pass or complain on the internet we've got master of kung fu number 126 kong on the planet of the apes number one coyotes number one and port of earth number one stop the presses this just in news from the bullpen over to you matt all right that's my news this week and uh, i think it's probably the the biggest news of the week that everybody has been popping up with in the number of different comic book fan sites that you might hook up to on social media and everybody's popped up making it sound like it just happened that day but a uh, brian michael bendis who's been with marvel for as long as probably anybody can remember he was the architect of a lot of the huge events through the 2000s so you know love him or leave him he was also the uh, one of the creators of powers which had i don't know if it's still going on but it was on the sony tv thing that they did uh, he did ultimate spider-man uh, new avengers jessica jones is yeah yeah house of m secret invasion we've talked about him quite a bit secret wars 2 yeah secret wars 2 he's the Kind of the mental voice of, of Iron Man. He does Miles because he invented Miles, which is fair because he invented the Ultimate Spider-Man. So he's kind of been the voice of Marvel and not necessarily like the, you know, in charge or editor in chief or anything else like that. But Marvel's been bendist for uh, almost 20 years now. I think he's been, I don't know that he's been necessarily like locked into Marvel because I could have sworn he's done some DC stuff within the last 20 years. But in the last 10 years or so, I've only seen Marvel from him. So he's kind of cut that thread uh, and they're going to basically wrap up the story arcs that he's working on right now at Marvel with everybody's favorite characters I think what they called it or beloved characters and then he's going to be heading over to DC which is you know the other side of the street and actually while researching this particular piece I, I discovered that it's not just the other side of the street did you know that DC moved to Los Angeles Burbank. Yeah. Burbank is technically Los Angeles, but don't tell that to people who live in Burbank. Well, I mean, it's a different city, but it's the LA Metro. Yeah. So he moved, uh, they moved out to Burbank, which I had no fucking clue of. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? When I found that. And he's up actually up in Portland. Um, yes. Is where he actually lives out of. So this should be interesting. I personally, what, what I'm thinking is going to, we're going to see is they're fucking everything up right now at DC Comics. And I don't mean fucking everything up right now, meaning, you know, they're, they're screwing up their storylines or something like that. They're literally fucking up the world the dc dark knight's metal everything's really jacked up right now like lois lane has got the doomsday virus and everything's physically actually screwed up so i'm wondering if they're gonna have bendis come in and kind of do like an ultimate dc thing or a soft reboot or something along those lines dc doesn't seem to care that they do reboots every two years anymore so he's kind of the person i would think of to come in and kind of give them a different feel for a reboot he's not what i think of when i think of a dc writer so they might be interested in kind of getting some of that what do you guys think well i don't think we really know enough about what he's his role is going to be i see him more 
more as like a creative vision for the entire company kind of person rather than, you know, someone who's, I'm, I'm sure they will give him some books to write, but I don't know if that's what they're hiring him for. I think they're hiring him for his ability to oversee like an entire line and kind of integrate TV, movies, comics, all of that, because that's one thing that DC is really good at is their animated movies and their video games and stuff. So, and their movies and comics have been a little bit behind Marvel, except for Batman. So I think they want someone to have that vision for the entire line. That's what I'm seeing this as. I'm sad to see him go. He's not going anywhere. He's he's at DC. All you have to do is embrace DC Comics. That's all you have to do. Just say it with me. DC Comics is awesome. I like Batman. I don't know if that's a bad thing, though. I mean... He has been at Marvel for so long that, you know, his vision, you know, sometimes a change is a good thing to allow some new voices. This is my opinion. I stand by my statement. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So much hate. I can feel the hate flowing through you. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He seems pretty excited about it. I, I do think he does. Yeah, what what I was what I was actually getting at is I think he's going to be like that big kind of vision, not figurehead, but like the guy who's one thing that comic books and especially those who like to do the big events kind of lack is a high level editorial vision. And I think the only thing that would really get him to move away from Marvel is probably money. Well, money, but (laughs) also power. (laughs) Well, I mean, if you're in a field where you're a fan and you've got to basically be in the big two at a really significant position, that has to be pretty exciting. That's what I think is, is like they're going to let him steer DC Comics is what I think is going to happen. Or, or like the DC multi-franchise kind of thing, like Ryan was saying. Yeah, I mean, we'll see as it plays out. Right now, we are wildly speculating on like three lines of released information. So I think it's obvious we're speculating. We're comic book fans talking about something. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Alrighty. Stay classy, nerds. Thanks, Anchorman. All right. And on to the pick of the week. Every episode, one of us picks their favorite book, and that's our pick of the week. This week, I am that nerd, and my pick goes to which I'm kind of surprised at, Daredevil number 595. Our companion song is Know Your Enemy by Green Day because, well, I like punk music. And two, this issue really shows how well I think Fisk and Matt Murdock know each other. They know the quirks. And they even say it like, oh, he knows my powers. He knows this. He knows I can hear him. Like, they're really playing to each other's weaknesses and what they know and what they don't know. And I think it really comes out. And it's at a level where Daredevil's going to have to really know and plan accordingly and not just, you know, skate by. So he's really going to have to embrace everything he knows about the Kingpin to make it work. So I think the song really fits that. Take a listen. Daredevil, number 595, Marvel Comics, Mayor Fisk, Part 1, written by Charles Soleil, pencils and inks by Stefano Landini, and colors by Mark 
um, Mila. Daredevil returns to New York after some time in China to find out that in many ways, kind of like our own election this last past year, that the world is upside down and it's not anything that we know. And the Kingpin is mayor of New York. As a lot of liberals might know, that that is a very shocking thing to feel and see and turn around you. And it has a, and I, it's my pick of the week because it has a lot of parallels to that and a lot of that frustration. And I, you know, you feel Matt Murdock have this frustration and it was kind of, I think because it evokes some, so much of that frustration as me as I'm reading it, that's what really made it be my pick of the week. Because bear in mind, I love Runaways. That could easily have been my pick of the week. But since this, was not something that I thought was going to evoke anything strong in me, and it did. I felt that I should give it its nod that it was due. But you see in this issue them turn the tables and him have to fight the Kingpin in a new way and seeing things in people that he didn't want to see and seeing the world through this new kind of lens. And I think it's really interesting. And I see, I know saying seeing to a blind character is kind of, but it's not meant that way. And so I thought it was just a really interesting intro to that. So what do you guys think? My thoughts on it were first, I thought that uh, Stefano Landini does a really good Vincent D'Onofrio. I thought the exact same thing. Man. <laughs> I was like, they did that perfect, but he doesn't do anybody else in the show. <laughs> Vincent D'Onofrio. Really? I thought Foggy looked a lot like him. I thought Foggy was pretty good. Maybe, but like like Matt doesn't look anything like the guy that they have on the, on the TV show, which isn't bad. Mm-hmm. But um, I guess looking at it again, he, he does kind of look a little bit like him. I could see it like around the, the brow ridge and the nose and whatnot. But, you know, Foggy's got different hair in here, and that is one of the defining things is Foggy's got long hair in the show. Uh, I also, this has got direct parallels, and I'm like, yeah, Marvel, we get it. Okay, thank you. There's a two-page spread where it's got the story going across, you know, both pages, where it's like the Times Square, and they've got, you know, ticker tape running down and everything. And Foggy's comments through there, like, that is a direct Trump reference. Yes. Yes. So this is this is their Trump story, basically. Well, what I like about this is you guys are right. This is definitely a Trump parallel that they're pulling from. But I think it kind of transcends that in that, like all good villains, the Kingpin doesn't believe he's a villain, right? He definitely here believes he's... I think he believes he's acting in a heroic manner, that he is giving the city what it needs, and he's the man strong enough to do so. And what I like about when they use Kingpin recently is I don't know if he is really could be called a villain anymore. I think he really falls more into the anti-hero persona, which is interesting because that's kind of what Daredevil is in a lot of ways. Like, when the Darkhold Dimension came up, Kingpin is the one who stepped up and helped to save New York, you know? He did it for selfish reasons, but he did save them. So, the people... And that's why I find him interesting. I love characters like that. And I think it's interesting, too. They didn't really reference that in here as to why people might be willing to side with the Kingpin. That he saved their asses, you know? He fed them. He kept hospitals open. He did the things that the heroes weren't able to do that made a real difference in people's lives. And I think that's interesting in here. And I think you're right when it comes to the art. That is absolutely Vincent D'Onofrio in The Kingpin. And it looks so right, even drawn, you know? Just that physical presence that he has. I also liked when they... Like you were saying, Carissa, when they're talking about how the Kingpin knows Daredevil's powers and he wants him to overhear that conversation, there's a part there where the Mafia comes to him and are like, hey, Fisk, good job. Now we're all going to, you know, wet our beak a little bit. And Fisk is like, get the fuck out. Like, I won. You didn't. You all lost. So I don't think he's 
doing this for crime. I think he's getting the thing that he's always wanted, which is like respect and power. He's never been. Oh, I I don't want to say never been because, you know, back in the day, they didn't really write these characters too deep. So he was just just generally, you know, big kingpin of crime character. But as, you know, characters and the writers have grown and they try to do more three-dimensional characters, they've kind of try to push him over into he wants to be more of the king than the kingpin kind of character yes. uh, he wants to be in charge and he wants to be the the king arthur for the kingdom he, he doesn't want anybody else there unless they're basically in his control uh so he he wants to be the guiding light for everything even if he's kind of a, a darker bit of light you know no matter what it does to him he wants to be he wants order to be maintained the way he wants order to be maintained so if you don't get in line with him then you get out kind of thing he's even willing to basically defy the supreme court so it should be interesting but the only thing i worry about is that this is really something that should have an impact on the other marvel books and i really am concerned that they're not going to so that that's the problem that i have with decisions like this and part of why this is an offside comment where i said that daredevil is not a major character they do stuff like this and then it does nothing it ends up doing nothing to spider-man or anything else like that i really hope that the rest of the editorial staff are paying attention because if the police are after matt then they should be after everybody else the same way there should be references to this in the other books well they gave a list of ones in particular it said spider-man punisher miss marvel right but it should be i want to see i want to see the police giving them a hard time in those books I want to see Kingpin being the mayor in those books and there being repercussions throughout those other books. That would dovetail in with Legacy pretty nicely, too, because the police were not, were not on the side of these vigilantes in the, like, the early 60s comics. Right. You know, like Spider-Man would go and stop the bank robbery and then he would have to web away when the cops showed up. And Captain Stacy was like, like in the ill-fated movies, Captain Stacy is after Spider-Man. That's that's because the police were after Spider-Man for a very long time. It wasn't until superheroes began being this, you know, big bright thing and the Avengers got big news and all that sort of stuff that, that the, the superheroes were really looked at being, you know, important and something that everybody embraced. I'm going to give it four and a half. Did you vote for him, Ellen? <laughs> I will give it four and a half i'm daredevil i make justice i will give it four and a quarter not you never you me me <laughs> good old fisk all right so on to moon knight number 188 from marvel comics crazy runs in the family part one written by max bemis Pencils and Inks by Jason Burroughs. Colors by Matt Lopez. So Max Bemis is best known as the lead singer for the band Say Anything, but he's done work in comics for Marvel in the past on books such as Worst X-Men Ever and Fool Killer. Bemis... Which I both like. Yeah, I like both of those as well. That's actually one of the reasons why I really wanted to read this book, as I like Max Bemis as a writer, which I'll get into why in a, in a couple minutes. Bemis is also very open about his struggles with mental illness, so he makes an interesting choice to write Moon Knight. A Marvel character is much about mental illness and the line between delusion and faith as super punching. So this take on Moon Knight doesn't actually have any Moon Knight in it, but it rather focuses on the shadow that Moon Knight casts over his former psychiatrist and her dealings with other patients she has, in particular a vet who is in a mental hospital for burning other soldiers to death who are hazing him. She tries to use the metaphorical construct of the gods that, in her opinion, her really wrong and almost malpractice opinion 
has helped Mark Spector deal with his mental illness. This all goes up in a flaming clusterfuck that uh, examines the complexity and intersection of faith and madness and has a new Moon Knight supervillain appear on the scene at the end. So I really liked this. I think Max Bemis is a good comic book writer for the same reason that he is a good performer, singer, and songwriter. A lot of his lines in here are almost poetic. Like they have that song lyric characteristic with while still being prose. And I think that really lends a lot of strength to this book. Because a lot of this is the psychiatrist thinking about what's going on and reflecting on the actual legacy of Moon Knight and what he means to to the world and to her and potentially to this person. It's also really cool as you learn what's going on. And there's this kind of tradition in Moon Knight where the people in the asylum, they know what's going on and they have these moments of clarity. Like there's a, a moment where one of the patients like runs up to the person and tells them like what's going on, you know? I just, I really liked this. I thought this did a really good job with the Moon Knight legacy and as a legacy book, I think it works really well because it really is about his literal legacy in the world and makes you care about the character's past and sets up the future for them. So I really liked it. What'd you guys think about it? I found it really interesting. I thought it was really drawn well. This is, is this the one you're talking that was very John Davis Hunt? Yes, it was. Yep. Okay. So yeah, it looks like John Davis Hunt's artwork. I, yeah, I found it really interesting about her, yeah, her whole mal, I was going to say that too, malpractice ways. I don't know. I just found it kind of interesting. Now, sometimes Moon Knight loses me and sometimes it's good. It's, it's usually it's very hit or miss with me, but I did really enjoy this one. It wouldn't have been my pick, but I did find it interesting. I also liked it. I was honestly kind of shocked and impressed. Historically, Moon Knight's not been a strong character, a strong book. He's always like the City of Heroes character you come up with. <laughs> He's like, well, let me see. I, I want to make a costume. Uh, I know it'll be all white and I'll put uh, I need a symbol. Okay, uh, a moon. I am I'm a moon and um, okay, now I have to come with an origin shit <laughs> it's just that's just the characters well he's like weird marvel's ripoff of batman he's supposed to be but i mean like black panther is a better ripoff of batman he's rich he's super smart he runs around in black with pointy ears so <laughs> moon knight is supposed to be but he's never really come off like that but in the last like couple years they've had like they've been playing off of the whole he's fucking crazy thing yeah. right so uh, and i think that's going really well i think having somebody who draws like john davis hunt it's <laughs> probably a good thing if you're going to be doing crazy there's yeah there is some john davis hunt artwork in here like when the zombies come pouring out of the room that's pretty terrifying the burns the guy in particular the patient yeah w when they walk into that room and he's all covered in blood and there's all that stuff drawn on the walls that's pretty terrifying it's ter well yeah i mean i never found Clean room terrifying, but I'm kind of screwed up in the head. So <laughs> it was neat looking, but it's just there. The way that it does the faces, the line work, even the coloring in this book is just, it really makes me think of clean room. Yeah, me too. But that's really good for this sort of thing because it deals with these really esoteric concepts and themes. You know, this is, everybody likes to draw parallels between Batman and Moon Knight, but he's just as much Hawkman as he is because he's got, you know, the Egyptian gods powering him up and there's a lot of Egyptian mythos, but there's also psychological issues and there's just crazy shit that happens and just insanity literally happens in this book. And it's just, wait, is this really happening? Like at the end, the, the psychiatrist is still alive, but now she's insane because, you know, she was burnt alive, that sort of thing. It, it was a surprise that I liked this book. I actually like this one better than I like the Daredevil book. Oh. Yeah, I like this one a lot too. 
I will give it four. I said I believe. Hmm. Not sure if I like it as much as you guys, but I do like it. I'm going to give it three and a quarter Amon Ra. All right. I will give it four and a half. I'm more of a Foo Fighters type of guy myself. No, that was pretty <laughs> When she's showing all the pictures of people who have had to deal with mental illness and have been able to succeed, sort of. Yeah, Kurt Cobain was one of them. Also, though, I gotta say, white, not really a good idea for a costume color when you're, like, punching people bloody. <laughs> That's got a stain horrible. It's true. His dry cleaning bills have to be through the roof. Yeah, seriously. All right, let's move over to another Marvel book because Legacy is just kind of being impressively pushy. <laughs> There's so many Legacy books. So we're going to go over to She-Hulk number 159, Marvel Comics. Jen Walters Must Die, part one. Written by Marco Tomiko. Pencils and inks by Genoi Lindsay. Colors by Federico Blee and Chris Sotomayor. Did Mar- just... Like, does Marvel and DC just hate us? They're like, you know what? We need to hire people whose names these guys are not going to be able to handle. <laughs> it's not the artists or anything else or the writers. It's just they they listen to our podcast and like, oh, these guys can't handle interesting names. <laughs> All right, let's fuck with them. <laughs> well, I think that fault is ours, not the... No, it's theirs. It's not ours. Mm, I disagree. Traitor. <laughs> nope wrong all right jennifer enters into legacy with the hulk book being renamed into she hulk and an interview with what seems to be her number one fan we get a cameo with hellcat and a pretty quick mugging scene that ends with jennifer hulking out and then being taken captive but then we discover who her number one fan is working with the uh, longtime hulk villain the leader all in all it's a pretty quick story one in which i would place in the i don't give a fuck if you put legacy on the masthead i do what i want you don't know me side of the road. Uh, I wasn't super enthused with this particular book. It doesn't feel like She-Hulk. Maybe it feels like the this recent run of the Hulk, but it seems to be, yes, they're starting a new story here, but it went by really fast and it just didn't have that She-Hulk feel to it that I think they could have just kept it being named the Hulk, which I think it's dumb that they did that. It seems to be they were trying to make a point with calling it Hulk, and they just kind of take that away. They One thing I do like is they acknowledge in the back their little legacy... Hey, just in case you forgot the background of this character, is that she's now a fear-based Hulk. She's not a... I guess it was kind of happiness, because she loved being She-Hulk, but now it's all out of fear because she almost died. What did you guys think? I liked this one a lot better than the previous She-Hulk books that we've had recently which are also by Mariko Tomiko. So I think this one does some good legacy stuff, but I think you're right. And it misses a key aspect of Jin, which is her being a lawyer. Like she and Daredevil should be the Marvel legal books. And there's almost none of that in yeah, here. Like, they touch on it, but that's it. I think in terms of legacy, they do good with repeating the blood transfusion that's happening with her against her will. So I like that. I like that she got single white femaled in this book. Uh, you know, and also had like a lot of I'm your number one fan stuff going on from Misery. So I think it was pretty good. I liked it. I liked it because it had a lot more humor that I tend to relate to. I like the drawings uh, style a lot more. Plus Hellcat, her and Hellcat. I like it when you see super friends, but not being super friends, but being normal friends. So I enjoy that. And so I thought it was a lot, had a lot more humor. And so it was easier to follow. And I like the the little quips that Jen is talking to herself about. I enjoyed it. Read a lot of She-Hulk back in the day? Yes. It just didn't, I don't know. It didn't feel like She-Hulk to me back from like the 80s and the 90s. It felt more like a image book. At least the art, the art is very kind of 90s imagey to me. Not shoulder pads and everything. It's just some of it's like, I want to do manga, but I'm not good at it. I think there are definitely some parts where this doesn't feel like Jen to me in that you're missing a lot of legal stuff, 
I don't think it's as funny as She-Hulk books normally are. Like, there is some humor in it, but it's a different kind of humor, almost, in, in a way. It's my kind of humor. I mean, what I the part that I like with She-Hulk books is almost the ridiculousness of the Marvel Universe that she... You know, deals with, like, giant robot interns, and that's the stuff that I like in She-Hulk. Me too. Um, and I feel that this kind of lacks in that. I think she understands the story of She-Hulk. You know, like like I said, that legacy thing with the blood transfusion, like, she's trying to tap back into that She-Hulk origin a little bit. But I don't know if she gets the character of Jen, if that makes sense. I don't think so, but I don't know. I mean, it's unfortunate that they did this to Jen, and then they decided to do legacy. Because she's about as far away from classic She-Hulk as she can be. Because, I mean, the, the whole character about She-Hulk is Jennifer always felt like she was just this boring little wallflower kind of character. And when she became She-Hulk, she basically felt free for the first time. That's why, you know, Banner's always trying to find a cure for being the Hulk. And Jennifer was always She-Hulk. Like, she didn't like being just Jennifer Walters. And now she's constantly Jennifer Walters, which is fine. But, like, the books where it was basically Felicity, but with a giant green woman and her misadventures and weird shit happens. I mean, She-Hulk has always been on the kind of Howard the Duck level of Marvel. Yes. Which is not to say she's like a Z-level character, but she's always, like you were saying, the, the zany shit. Like, what is his name? Warthog? Or the guy with the big, like, Pumbaa head was a book of hers. The the dude who had, uh, you know, a, a space semi-truck was a She-Hulk book. Man-Thing would show up in She-Hulk. That, that was kind of her niche. And maybe they're going to go in that direction. I just don't really feel it. And it's not that bad they're doing kind of the, it's like Hellcat and She-Hulk in this book. Because, you know, Hellcat is a character that kind of fits in with the She-Hulk books. It just feels weird. Like I said, I think it's better than the previous She-Hulk we've gotten in this run. But it's still still not my favorite. But I do really like She-Hulk. So I'll take what I can get. I agree it is it is better. I just, her mental damage isn't being played kind of well as enough. But it's still also like the main theme of the story is that she's down. But they just don't write to it enough. I'm going to give it three and three quarters Love this superhero stuff. Look at that outfit. That is nice with the fake pecs and everything. <laughs> I will give it three and a half. I liked you better green. I like it more than you guys. And so I gave it four. No reason. The usual reasons. All right. So we like cool comic related stuff. So here's something we think you might like. So as we get closer to the kind of Christmas buying season, I think a lot of people might be in a situation where they know people who like comics and they want to get them something comics related. And the Hush 15th anniversary deluxe edition hardcover just came out. I think if you know someone who likes Batman, that Hush is one of those classic stories that people will want to have. It's not my personal favorite Batman story, but it is a very important Batman story. And those deluxe edition hardcovers, they are beautiful when you get them. So I think any comic fan in general likes Batman and they would be happy to, to get this. So if you're not sure what to get them uh, and you want to spend, I think it's about 50 bucks, you could probably pick it up a little cheaper somewhere else. But if you want to get something nice for a comic fan in your life, I think Batman Hush, the 15th anniversary edition, you could do worse. I like hardcover editions. Yay. Me too. I all my every pretty much all everything I buy is a hardcover edition. Of course everything that I want hasn't really come out in hardcover edition. Nope. Still waiting for that Doctor Strange. Yeah, seriously. I kinda like the hardcovers, but I'm I'm not super partial to them. I'm not a huge fan of Hush either. The biggest thing that I like out of it is Jim Lee's got a good way of he, he actually knows how to do Batman's ears and his symbol, <laughs> which are my favorite parts of Hush. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm wearing a Jim Lee Batman shirt right now. Well, I up your Batman shirt and I raise you a Spider-Gwen shirt and Guardians of the Galaxy pants. <laughs> <laughs> well, I up that and I have a shirt that shows Han and Chewie in the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon speeding through hyperspace and the TARDIS flying right in front Ooh. of them. Does it cover your Justice League tattoo sleeve or? Nope, that is on my arm. <laughs> this is a t-shirt, so oh. that's on my lower arm. It's not a whole sleeve. That would be awesome. <laughs> All right, back to Legacy, sort of. Marvel, really. Um, with my honorable mention pick of the week, to the Runaways, number three, Marvel Comics, Find Your Way Home, part three, written by Rainbow Rowell, pencils and inks by Chris Anka, and colors by Matt Wilson. The continued journey to restore the Runaways, Gert, Chase, and Nico go to find Caroline, who is a total, like, dorm, join college life type of girl. But they struggle where she's happy, and they're not going to force her. And just a lot of this is the story of Gert just coming to terms with where she's at and what's going on. There's some redemption in the fact that Nico realizes that she needs them after all. And there's some really good lines and some heartbreak with Gert and Chase because Gert's like, you're already too old for me, and now you're really old for me. <laughs> but this is still lots of really cute moments, lots of very true, again, runaways moments. I personally really love this issue. I thought it was really good, but I didn't make it my pick of the week because I know that I'm biased when it comes to the runaways. But again, and I mean, I'm going to keep saying things I've said for the last two issues. Gert is done really well. She's nailed like her personality to T. I really like that. I'm not quite sure to give up yet on Caroline. I feel like something might come up with that and there's still some menacing parts with uh, molly and what's going on with her but hopefully that's we get to her next issue i loved this issue i think chris anka with his art is just knocking it out of the park with this there's a a scene where caroline is dancing in her room when she's in her like energy form that just looks beautiful and carefree and she looks happy with the sweet Dazzler poster in the back. Yep. And there's, which makes sense for her really liking Dazzler, right? Because their powers are somewhat similar. There's also lots of little cool things that are happening in the background of the art. Like, I think you've posted these, Carissa, where they're standing outside the person's dorm room and the other person walks out into the dorm room hallway and Old Lace and him have this kind of look and then they go back into their room, like that slow backing away back into the room like you would if you saw a dinosaur out in your hallway. It's like the, yep, nope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's also a moment where they're talking about being happy and getting the band back together again. And you see a little thought bubble from Old Lace where it's like an old Hanna-Barbera cartoon with them jamming out like a Josie and the Pussycats like cartoon band. That I thought was really cute. Uh, and the writing in here is spectacular. Like, I really think Rainbow Rowells is really a very good choice for this. Like, so I don't think anyone is the equal of Brian K. Vaughn when it comes to writing Runaways, but she comes really close. Like, this issue deals a lot with the idea of you can't go back, right? You get Caroline talking about that, how that was in her past, and she's happy now and moving forward. And she has this, like, affirmation thing she does that her psychiatrist gave her to do. And there's this kind of heartbreaking scene where she has to kind of say goodbye to the past, and she's sitting on her bed like repeating those things to herself that you know she's like a good person and she's not responsible for her parents choices that's good the scene in the car where it's not exactly a breakup but it's like a realization that they can't be what they once were with chase and with them that is really good writing this book is really really good this is probably my favorite issue of runaways so far in this run there's a great one where the, there's like college kids are a cool dog can we pet it and there's this little short panel of Gert glaring at them oh I love that. <laughs> so, Matt, you weren't on the original run of Runaways. What do you think of this 
as someone new to this? I've been reading them. I just haven't had time to read too many of them. I think I've gotten through like the first the first main arc, maybe. I don't know, the first seven issues or so. They're basically in the middle of Running Away, and mm-hmm. I think they just found the the that like castle mansion thing that fell through the ground, which is very Lost Boys. I really think that this book is a really good spiritual successor to the original series. The writing gets the characters really well. It's got the emotional turmoil of being like a very young adult. It, it feels I love coming of age movies like, you know, Dazed and Confused and Mallrats and all that where it's like you're young but you're becoming an adult. You've got lessons to learn, you've got responsibilities to own up to, but you still you still got that wild, you know, you're still a kid kind of thing to it. Movies. I think the book is really good at kind of carrying that through. I disagree that Carolina is happy. She has like this affirmation that she keeps doing to herself. She's going to show up later. I absolutely am, am sure of it like when they need her she's going to be there but right now she's basically trying to fit into the real world and be normal but i mean look at the start of the book she's flying around in her alien form so i I think that like she's trying to fit in and be normal but at the same point in time she's got stuff pulling her over to being special she's just trying to fight it a little bit and try to fit in and i think it's going to wear thin on her and she's going to break through from that and I don't think Chase and Gert are over either. I don't think Chase has given up on her. I think this book does a really good job of highlighting how those two years between kind of like the end of high school, beginning of college, those couple years are really important years. And Gert has missed those. So when she's like 16, 17 and everyone else is like 20, there's this huge age gap between them, even though it's only a few years. She was thinking she was 15 because she said she couldn't even drive yet. Oh, that's true. So I guess she's 15 and they they seem like they're in their early 20s. So It's really, really creepy now. And it does look like that Victor is rebooting, but he's rebooting the bad guy version. I like that where they were showing all the programs that were Mm -hmm. (laughs) booting up. Those were pretty cool. You can see that Victor runs on Linux. And the the (laughs) Hot Topic references are great. And I'm totally getting myself an orange Henley Stein shirt. Like, I'm going to make myself one of those. (laughs) Yeah, I like this. The face acting in here is good, too. Very good. Like, I can't say enough about Chris Henka's artwork in this. It's spectacular. And it's also, I think that's important in a book like this, where it's especially about the characters and the stories and their like emotional growth it's really really important to get consistent faces and get faces that are expressive they've also they've got a lot of interesting angles and whatnot like especially with victor being a camera they they use both him at weird angles but also his eyes at weird angles in the like the boot up scenes it's just it's really well done very cinematic this is a good piece to have along when they're about to do the TV show, which is out in like, what, a week, two weeks? Yes. Mm-hmm. I also think this book does really good with the pacing, too, and that there's this sense of dread that's building. We have both Victor and Molly. Like, there's something wrong, but it's just kind of in the background, like, simmering away. Correct. I was about to say the same thing. I really like this one. It really made me happy. I'm going to give it five. Surprise! I'm not dead. I will give it four and a half. It really seems like you're crying with the sniffing and the trembling. I'm going to give it four and a half. I am a good person. I am my own person. My parents' decisions don't define me. I forgive myself for the mistakes I made when I was too young to know any better. I'm allowed to be happy. Well, let's go somewhere not happy. So we're going to head over to DC for Batman Lost number one. DC Comics, written by Scott Snyder, Joshua Williamson, James Tiddy and the Fourth, art by Yannick Paquette, 
Doug Minky, Jorge Jimenez, and Jamie Mendoza. Uh, Batman Lost is a Dark Knight's metal tie-in that shows what has been going on with Bruce since he was taken into the Dark Multiverse. It shows him as an old man with his many, many grandchildren running around Wayne Manor. Janet, who appears to be Grandpa's favorite, asks for a story and picks Batman's first story from Detective Comics number 27. While reading the story, something is, is pulling to him. The tale moves from one Bat mythos to another and takes us on a tour of Batman's past and present. And I don't mean that in the possessive. I mean different Batman like Batman in different stories, past and present. All the stories are true, even the ones that are contradictory. Through these stories, we find that Batman's entire existence is marred by the interference of Barbatos. At the end of the story, we find Bruce broken on the machine, which is where Superman found him upon breaking into the Dark Multiverse, and I think it was Metal number 3? Yeah, 3 is when they fall into the trap and go into the Dark Multiverse, and Superman is the engine to, yeah. Once again, DC shows that they're really bad at publishing books in time. I, I thought it was a very interesting book. I thought the art was done pretty well. The flipping around that happens in the book is very kind of disorienting, but I think that's on purpose. It shows literally Batman throughout, like from the 30s into the future, into space. Him with his short wrist-length gloves where he's doing scientific investigation. It had him with the classic like devil horn bat ears. The imagery on this is really good. It's kind of a a Morrison-y feel to the whole thing, but it's also trying to pull in and establish that Batman-Hawkman in a relation that's reportedly existed throughout time and sticks the whole Batman mythos all the way back to the dawn of man. What did you guys think? I think this is a good fit for a legacy week, actually. I felt like this was, in a lot of ways, like a Batman legacy book, in, in a way. And then you got to touch on a lot of Batman history in here. I like that it's all twisted and the stories are melding together. I like that. I also like there. there's this one scene in particular where Batman is almost fighting against like these stories and his granddaughter is getting more and more distressed as this is going on and wanting him to finish the story and then she shifts into this like demon monster thing is like up on the roof crawling around like there goes the things i was gonna say <laughs> yeah that was some <laughs> freaky shit uh and then yeah, i was like oh chris is gonna love that and then i like how it loops back around at the end like he's starting the story again like this is a loop that he's caught in i really liked it my meaning i was gonna say is that as a storytelling device i really like the introduction of this granddaughter asking for a story and picking a story that instantly engaged me into this particular issue like i really thought that was an interesting story storytelling device like and then you'd see her talking over it like it's like that's not right she's like no no that's exactly right and this kind of had that run where it made it really interesting even though the jumps it got kind of confusing but you kind of got that feel of what was happening because it was a story that you know something wasn't right and then yeah the creepy ass part were like creepy ass children being creepy you know <laughs> yep really fit into it and but you know i just really liked how that granddaughter was this device this catalyst that made the story keep moving and i thought it was it's just so interesting to me i really liked that part legacy is a good word for this it's it shows the history of batman and, and tries to fit a new kind of piece of retroactive mythos into it and also maintain the creepiness that you need to have with the Batman Correct. book. Yep. I'm going to give it four and a quarter. It starts with a window and a scream, Lost to the Dark. I gave it three and three quarters. I'll show you the fucking end. I'll show you the fucking end. I will give it four, but it's a curious window. It's always covered in blood. I like that part. I also love that the window is the, like, it makes you wonder if the bat flying through the window is Barbados. Right. I think they heavily impl imply that. It looked yeah. like man bat out there flying around at one point. Yeah. So I'm going to take us over to something I didn't like nearly as much, which surprised me. <laughs> 
Star Wars number 38 from Marvel Comics, The Ashes of Jeddah Part 1. Written by Karen Gillan, pencils and inks by Salvador LaRocca, colors by Guru EFX. Alright, so Karen Gillan and Salvador LaRocca, who's run on Darth Vader, was one of the best Star Wars comics in recent history. Ever, ever. Yeah, it was real good. Uh, take over the main Star Wars book in this heavily Star Wars Rogue One dependent. Further bridging the original trilogy with Rogue One, we get a tale that takes a dark reflex- reflection on Princess Leia, who we met in the Star Wars annual, princess from a mining planet who's become a pawn of Vader. The Empire's trying to mine ky- kyber crystals from the ruins of the moons of Jeddah and bring in a grizzled Imperial officer with a robot arm who's kind of a weak imitation of Vader, which they point out, to whip the Empire into shape and meet their quotas. Meanwhile, the OG trilogy cast is flying around in the Millennium Falcon trying to make diplomatic contact with the surviving members of Rogue One. I sense a great disturbance in the continuity. This one, I don't like prequels at all. And Rogue One, while it's a fine movie, I think when you try and integrate it too much into the original cast, it causes all these ripples where things get weird. And I don't... That's my main objection to this. This is so heavily dependent on Rogue One to appreciate this story. I also found the art from Salvador La Roca to be really weird in that the art style when they show the face of the cast characters looks so different than the other characters. It almost looks rotoscoped in their effect. Like, it looks okay, but I think it falls into that uncanny valley. So I didn't appreciate them messing with the original trilogy. I think it's okay if you do prequels, but you need to keep that stuff contained in its own timeline. I don't want that stuff to butt into the original trilogy, and they seem really determined to do that here. So I did not like it for that reason. I found the art to be well done, except when they did the faces of the original cast. What did you guys think of it? My highest compliment was going to be to the art. I like the art. It was because <laughs> I really liked Han. He looks he looks pretty hot. There's some sweet backhanding slap uh, moves in this issue, which, you know, I appreciate the good backhand. But yeah, it didn't really interest me. It didn't capture my interest nearly as much as the Vader one did. So I was pretty disappointed. That's why I was so happy to see... Kieran Gillen and Salvador La Roca back on a Star Wars book. I was like, oh, the band's back together. This is going to be great. But I think the Vader book was good because it was kind of removed maybe from continuity. And this book is heavily continuity focused, you know? So when you're saying continuity focused and you're irritated that it's spiking into continuity, what continuity do you feel it's overriding? They're really pushing that kyber crystal shit. Yep, that's really not in the original trilogy. I feel like all of these interactions with this rebel split away faction from Rogue One really doesn't fit with the tone of the original trilogy. I feel like anytime you add information from prequels, it's going to affect your original trilogy. That's why I really don't think prequels are the way to go when you make stories. I think you should always go forward with your story, not backwards. Did you guys ever read any of the EU books? Are you talking about the comics or the... Yes. No, the book. Yes, books. I did. Uh, did you read Splinter of a Mind's Eye? I did not read that one, no. No, I read... That's the first one. I read the, the, well, I, the I Thrawn picked ones. ones. Back then, I picked them based off the cover art. So <laughs> so Splinter of the Mind's Eye was from like 87, 89. It was just a couple years after Star Wars was quote unquote done. And Splinter of the Mind's Eye is about right where we're at right now. It's in between A New Hope and Empire Strikes Back. And it's where the whole concept of the kyber crystals gets brought in. Kyber crystals isn't something that they made up for Rogue One or for Force Awakens. They've been in Star Wars for an extremely long time. Now, with that said, the planet, I've not ever remembered seeing it. My problems are aren't necessarily with the story because this is like i love the old marvel books the marvel 
uh, Star Wars books, and they fit in between the the other books pretty well. I mean, there's years of time between A New Hope and Empire Strikes Back, and then I think like if I remember right, like two years in between Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. So there's there's a lot of time in between there to kind of fill out the the stories, and there's a ban on anything that happens between Return and Force Awakens. So they can't really necessarily do that until they finish up the base trilogy. I don't mind them using that blank space to tell additional stories, mm-hmm. but I, th- I feel like this one is really a, like a sloppy attempt to merge those two, that trilogy and that movie together. If you're going to be doing that, give me Shadow of the Empire. That's what I want to see. Yeah. See, but this, so do you understand why they're going after the Kyber Crystals so much? Phenomenal cosmic power. They need it for the second Death Star. Right. The Death Star is a huge lightsaber. Yes, I understand that. So, I mean, that's... I, I didn't have a problem necessarily continuity-wise. I didn't I don't really see any continuity issues in here. Like, you, the art is really what bugs me. The faces, they don't match up with any of the other art. Right. Like, the faces are super detailed painted, and then the other stuff is line art. Yep, that's the thing. Like, the, the original art that Kieran Gillen... I'm sorry, that Salvador La Roca is doing looks really good, and then it's so jarring, the difference in the way that his cast members look. The only thing is, like, I know they had crystals in the book before, I mean, that's what powers the lightsabers and everything, but there seems to be a really big push with the cartoons and everything recently to push the whole thing about kyber crystals and get that name out there and make it, like, a big deal, where before it was just kind of, like, a thing, like, just an item in the in the universe. Now it's, like, a huge plot They're trying device. to explain shit that doesn't need to be explained. So you feel they're the new midichlorians? Yes. Exactly. Yes. That's exactly. <laughs> that I can understand. Yeah. yeah, I got that's... it. That's what the lightsabers powers the crystals. I get that. But like this recently, the last couple of years in their continuity, it's been like a huge push about them. Yeah. I also find it funny though that they're all like, I need all these carbon crystals. And like, sir, these are all we've been able to get. And I'm like, it seems like the Falcon is sitting literally on a moon made of kyber crystals. <laughs> I'm like, dude, there's some right fucking there. Oh, look. And there's the rebels. So I am going to give this two uncanny valleys. <laughs> I gave it two and a half backhanded slap. All right. I I was annoyed by the art, but I think that the story was actually good in my personal opinion. So I'm going to give it three and a half. Look, trust me. You can shoot any Death Stars that turn up. I'll handle the diplomacy. And now for pull, pass, or complain about it on the internet. First, we've got Master of Kung Fu number 126 by Marvel Comics. Shang Chi's Day Off, written by CM Punk. Well, that explains a bit. Pencils and inks by Delabor Telegic. And colors by Eric Arsenega. I will give this one a poll. What did you guys think? I think if you like Kung Fu and that kind of cheesy 70s comics, pull it. Otherwise, pass. I'm going pass. And it's mostly I kind of echoing what Ryan's opinion is. If it is that if those things are your jam, then then do pull it. But for me, I like the artwork, but it's not my, t- my cup of tea, so I passed. Here's the question to ask yourself for this one. Do you like Kung Fu Monkeys? If so, this is for you. Yeah. Do you like 70s movies? Then you'll like yeah. this movie. <laughs> do you like monkeys? Do you like Kung Fu? Do you like goofy comedies? Then you will love this book. <laughs> All right. More monkeys. More monkeys. Kong on the Planet of the Apes, number one by Boom Studios. Written by Ryan Ferrier. Pencils and inks by Carlos Magno. Colors by Alex Gumeres. I give this one a pull. I love Planet of the Apes and King Kong. What did you guys think? Pull this one. It's fantastic. I forget how much I like the Boom Planet of the Apes. Fucking books. gorgeous, too. Yep. Yeah. I give it a pull, especially if you're a fan of uh, those genres. It is worth it. It's fun. It's a good read. Alrighty, next, we've got Coyotes number one, Image Comics, written by Sam Lewis, 
Art by Caitlin Jarsky. I gave this one a... Somewhere between a pass and complain about it on the internet. <sighs> Probably pass. I gave it a pull. Wear coyotes. Really stylized artwork. Yes. <laughs> I am between a pass and a pull on this one. I think it's going to get better as it goes on. I think it's confusing. Alrighty. The last book, Port of Earth, number one, Image Comics, written by Zach Kaplan, pencils and inks by Andrea Modi, colors by Vladimir Popov. I give this one a... I'm just going to give it a pass. I don't even think it's worth complaining about. I will pull it. I thought it was really interesting. I gave it a pass. It just didn't capture my interest. There you have it. Alrighty. So next week uh, for our, our book lists that Ryan just kind of straps around our necks and then just forces us to read. <laughs> Push that stone up the cliff, Sisyphus, and stop complaining. Push it! Push it! We've got Doctor Strange, number 381, which I would have pulled anyways. Yes. Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man, number 297. The Punisher, number 218. Woo. And The Demon, Hell on Earth, number one. Uh, for the uh, for the pull pass to complain about it on the internet, we've got Champions, number 14. And The Batman Who Laughs, number one. So that was the world of comics for this week. You can find all kinds of nerd shenanigans, including our other podcast on original streaming media, which hopefully is covering Runaway soon. Cut the cord at fourcolornerds.com or our Facebook page. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We're on iTunes and Google Play Music. On Stitcher. On SoundCloud. And on Podcast Addict. Be sure to rate. Review. And subscribe! Be sure to come back next week for another episode. Until then, keep reading, nerds!